here and welcome to the fourth episode of Constitution of India podcast. In the last three podcasts, we looked at the evolution of constitution across the world and also the significance of having a constitution. Before diving deeper to understand Constitution of India, I want to read out the Grammar of Anarchy, the speech given by Dr. B.R. Ambedkar in the Constituent Assembly of India in Delhi on the day of the adoption of the Constitution on 25th November 1949. I am reading this speech because I see its relevance even today. The Grammar of Anarchy by Dr. B. R. Ambedkar. As much defense as could be offered to the Constitution has been offered by my friends Sir Alladi Krishnaswamy Iyer and Mr. T. T. Krishnamachari. I shall not therefore enter into the merits of the Constitution because I feel however a good Constitution may be, it is sure to turn out bad because those who are called to work it happen to be a bad lot. However a bad constitution may be, it may turn out to be good if those who are called to work it happen to be a good lot. The working of a constitution does not depend wholly upon the nature of the constitution. The constitution can provide only the organs of the state such as the legislature, executive and the judiciary. The factors on which the working of those organs of the state depend are the people and the political parties they will set up as their instruments to carry out their wishes and their politics. Who can say how the people of India and their parties will behave? Will they uphold constitutional methods of achieving their purposes or will they prefer revolutionary method of achieving them? If they adopt the revolutionary methods, however good the constitution may be, it requires no profit to say that it will fail. It is therefore futile to pass any judgment upon the constitution without reference to the part which the people and their parties are likely to play. The condemnation of the constitution largely comes from two quarters, the Communist Party and the Socialist Party. Why do they condemn the constitution? Is it because it is really a bad constitution? I venture to say no. The Communist Party wants a constitution based upon the principle of the dictatorship of the proletariat. They condemn the constitution because it is based upon parliamentary democracy. The socialists want two things. The first thing they want is that they come in power. The constitution must give them the freedom to nationalize or socialize all private property without payment of compensation. The second thing that the socialists want is that the fundamental rights mentioned in the constitution must be absolute and without any limitations so that if their party fails to come into power, they would have the unfettered freedom not merely to criticize but also to overthrow the state. The subheading, no right to bind succeeding generations. These are the main grounds on which the constitution is being condemned. I do not say that the principle of parliamentary democracy is the only ideal form of political democracy. I do not say that the principle of no acquisition of private property without compensation is so sacrosanct that there can be no departure from it. I do not say that fundamental rights can never be absolute and the limitations set upon them can never be lifted. 
what i do say is that the principles embodied in the constitution are the views of the present generation or if you think this to be an overstatement i say they are the views of the members of the constituent assembly why blame the drafting committee for embodying them in the constitution i say why blame even the members of the constituent assembly Jefferson the great American statesman who played so great a part in the making of the American constitution has expressed some very weighty views which makers of constitution can never afford to ignore in one place he has said we may consider each generation as a distinct nation with a right by the will of the majority to bind themselves but none to bind the succeeding generation more than the inhabitants of another country in another place he has said the idea that institutions established for the use of the nation cannot be touched or modified even to make them answer their end because of rights graciously supposed in those employed to manage them in the trust of the public may perhaps be a salutary provision against the abuses of a monarch but is most absurd against the nation itself yet our lawyers and priests generally inculcate this doctrine and suppose that preceding generation held the earth more freely than we do had had a right to impose laws on us unalterably by ourselves and that we in the like manner can make laws and impose burdens on future generation which they will have no right to alter in fine that the earth belongs to the dead and not the living i admit that what jefferson has said is not merely true but absolutely true there can be no question about it had the constituent assembly departed from this principle laid down by jefferson it would certainly be liable to blame even to condemnation but i ask has it quite the contrary one has only to examine the provision relating to the amendment of the constitution i challenge any of the critics of the constitution to prove that any constituent assembly anywhere in the world has in the circumstances in which this country finds itself provided such a facile procedure for the amendment of the constitution if those who are dissatisfied with the constitution have only to obtain a two-third majority and if they cannot obtain even a two-thirds majority in the parliament elected on adult franchise in their favor their dissatisfaction with the constitution cannot be deemed to be shared by the general public the subheading the danger of divisive politics my mind is full of future of a country that i feel i ought to take this occasion to give expression to some of my reflections thereon On 26 January 1950 India will be an independent country what would happen to her independence will she maintain her independence or will she lose it again this is the first thought that comes to my mind it is not the india was never an independent country the point is that she once lost the independence she had will she lose it a second time it is this thought which makes me most anxious for the future what perturbs me greatly is the fact that not only india has once before lost her independence but she lost it by infidelity and treachery of some of her own people in the invasion of sindh by mohammed bin qasim 
the military commanders of King Dahar accepted bribes from the agents of Muhammad bin Qasim and refused to fight on the side of their king. It was Jaichand who invited Muhammad Ghori to invade India and fight against Prithviraj and promised him the help of himself and the Solanki kings. When Shivaji was fighting for the liberation of Hindus, the other Maratha noblemen and the Rajput kings were fighting the battle on the side of Mughal emperors. When the British were trying to destroy the Sikh rulers, Gulab Singh, their principal commander, sat silent and did not help to save the Sikh kingdom. In 1857, when a large part of India had declared a war of independence against the British, the Sikhs stood and watched the event as silent spectators. Will history repeat itself? It is this thought which fills me with anxiety. This anxiety is deepened by the realization of the fact that in addition to our old enemies in the form of caste and creed, we are going to have many political parties with diverse and opposing political creeds. Will Indians place the country above their creed or will they place creed above country? I do not know. But this much is certain that if the parties place creed above country, our independence will be put in jeopardy a second time and probably be lost forever. This eventuality we must all resolutely guard against. We must be determined to defend our independence with the last drop of our blood. Subheading, the importance of constitutional methods. On 26th January 1950, India would be a democratic country in the sense that India from that day would have a government of the people, by the people and for the people. The same thought comes to my mind. What would happen to her democratic constitution? Will she be able to maintain it or will she lose it again? This is the second thought that comes to my mind and makes me an as anxious as the first. It is not that India did not know what is democracy. There was a time when India was studded with republics and even where they were monarchies, they were either elected or limited. They were never absolute. It is not that India did not know parliaments or parliamentary procedure. A study of the Buddhist Bhikshu Sanghas discloses that not only there were parliaments for the Sanghas, were nothing but parliaments, but the Sanghas knew and observed all the rules of parliamentary procedure known to modern times. Although these rules of parliamentary procedure were applied by the Buddha to the meetings of the Sanghas, he must have borrowed them from the rules of the political assemblies functioning in the country in his time. This democratic system India lost. Will she lose it a second time? I do not know. But it is quite possible in a country like India, where democracy from its long disuse must be regarded as something quite new. There is danger of democracy giving place to dictatorship. It is quite possible for this newborn democracy to retain its form, but give place to dictatorship in fact. If there is a landslide, the danger of the second possibility becoming actuality is much greater. If we wish to maintain democracy, not merely in form, but also in fact, what must we do? The first thing in my judgment we must do is to hold fast to constitutional methods of achieving our social and economic objectives. It means we must abandon the bloody methods of revolution. 
it means that we must abandon the method of civil disobedience non cooperation and satyagraha when there was no way left for constitutional method for achieving economic and social objectives there was a great deal of justification for unconstitutional methods but where constitutional methods are open there can be no justification for these unconstitutional methods these methods are nothing but the grammar of anarchy and the sooner they are abandoned the better for us subheading the politics of pedestals the second thing we must do is to observe the caution which john stuart mill has given to all who are interested in the maintenance of democracy namely not to lay their liberties at the feet of even a great man or to trust him with power which enable him to subvert their institutions there is nothing wrong in being grateful to great men who have rendered lifelong services to the country but there are limits to gratefulness as has been well said by the irish patriot daniel o'connell no man can be grateful at the cost of his honor no woman can be grateful at the cost of her chastity and no nation can be grateful at the cost of its liberty this caution is far more necessary in the case of india than in the case of any other country for in india bhakti or what may be called the path of devotion or hero worship plays a part in its politics unequaled in magnitude by the part it plays in the politics of any other country in the world bhakti in religion may be a road to the salvation of the soul but in politics bhakti or hero worship is a sure road to degradation and to eventual dictatorship subheading social democracy the third thing we must do is not to be content with mere political democracy we must make our political democracy a social democracy as well political democracy cannot last unless there lies at the base of its social democracy what does social democracy mean it means a way of life which recognizes liberty equality and fraternity as the principles of life these principles of liberty equality and fraternity are not to be treated as separate items in a trinity they form a union of trinity in the sense that to divorce one from the other is to defeat the very purpose of democracy liberty cannot be divorced from equality equality cannot be divorced from liberty nor can liberty and equality be divorced from fraternity without equality liberty would produce the supremacy of the few over the many equality without liberty would kill individual initiative without fraternity liberty would produce the supremacy of few over the many equality without liberty would kill individual initiative without fraternity liberty and equality could not become a natural course of things it would require a constable to enforce them we must begin by acknowledging the fact that there is complete absence of two things in indian society one of these is equality on the social plane we have in india a society based on the principle of graded inequality we have a society in which there are some who have immense wealth as against many who live in abject poverty on the 26th january 1950 we are going to enter into a life of contradictions in politics we will have equality and in social and economic life we will have inequality in politics 
we will be recognizing the principle of one man, one vote and one vote, one value. In our social and economic life, we shall, by reason of our social and economic structure, continue to deny the principle of one man, one value. How long shall we continue to live this life of contradictions? How long shall we continue to deny equality in our social and economic life? If we continue to deny it for long, we will do so only by putting our political democracy in peril. We must remove this contradiction at the earliest possible moment or else those who suffer from inequality will blow up the structure of political democracy which this assembly has to laboriously build up. The second thing we are wanting in is recognition of the principle of fraternity. What does fraternity mean? Fraternity means a sense of common brotherhood of all Indians, Indians being one people. It is the principle which gives unity and solidarity to social life. It is a difficult thing to achieve. A subheading, to build a nation. I remember the days when politically minded Indians resented the expression, the people of India. They preferred the expression, the Indian nation. I am of the opinion that in believing that we are a nation, we are cherishing a great delusion. How can people divided into several thousands of castes be a nation? The sooner we realize that we are not as yet a nation in social and psychological sense of the world, the better for us. For then, only we shall realize the necessity of becoming a nation and seriously think of ways and means of realizing the goal. The realization of this goal is going to be very difficult. The castes are anti-national. In the first place, because they bring about separation in social life. They are anti-national also because they generate jealousy and antipathy between caste and caste. But we must overcome all these difficulties if we wish to become a nation in reality. For fraternity can be a fact only when there is a nation. Without fraternity, equality and liberty will be no deeper than coats of paint. These are my reflections about the tasks that lie ahead of us. They may not be very pleasant to some, but there can be no gain saying that political power in this country has too long been the monopoly of a few and many are only beasts of burden but also beasts of prey. This monopoly has not merely deprived them of their chance of betterment, it has sapped them of what may be called the significance of life. These downtrodden classes are tired of being governed. They are impatient to govern themselves. This urge for self-realization in the downtrodden classes must not be allowed to devolve into a class struggle or class war. It would lead to a division of the house. That would indeed be a day of disaster. For, as has been well said by Abraham Lincoln, a house divided against itself cannot stand very long. Therefore, the sooner the room is made for the realization of their aspiration, the better for the few, the better for the country, the better for the maintenance, for their independence, and the better for the continuance of its democratic structure. This can only be done by the establishment of equality and fraternity in all spheres of life. That is why I have laid so much stress on them. I do not wish to vary the house any further. Independence is no doubt a matter of choice.
but let us not forget that this independence has thrown on us great responsibilities. By independence, we have lost the excuse of blaming the British for anything going wrong. If year after things go wrong, we will have nobody to blame except ourselves. There is great danger of things going wrong. Times are fast changing. People, including our own, are being moved by new ideologies. They are getting tired of government by the people. They are prepared to have governments for the people and are indifferent whether it is government of the people and by the people. If we wish to preserve the constitution in which we have sought to enshrine the principle of government of the people, for the people and by the people, let us resolve not to be tardy in the recognition of the evils that lie across a path and which induce people to prefer government for the people to government by the people, nor to be weak in our initiative to remove them. That is the only way to serve the country. I know of no better. That is the end of the Dr. Ambedkar's speech, which is called The Grammar of Anarchy. Going ahead, uh, let's for look at the making of the Constitution of India. Before jumping into it, uh, as usual, a sneak peek to the Constitution around the world. Nepal, our neighbor, got its first Constitution on 20th September 2015 replacing the interim constitution of 2007. The interim constitution provided for a constituent assembly to be formed to frame the constitution. The constituent assembly failed and it was dissolved in May 2012 and second constituent assembly was formed in 2013. The new assembly promulgated the constitution in 2015. The constitution affirms the country as a secular federal parliamentary republic divided into seven provinces. So now let's see how it's panned out in India. The idea of constituent assembly was first put forward by M. N. Roy in 1927. Although this idea was criticized by orthodox communists and others, the Congress adopted it in the famous resolution of the Congress Working Committee on the white paper of the British government passed at Bombay in June 1934. The resolution said, the only satisfactory alternative to the white paper is a constitution drawn up by a constituent assembly elected on the basis of universal adult franchise or as near it as possible with the power if necessary to the important minorities to have their representatives elected exclusively by the electors belonging to such minorities. However, other Congress members, Indian liberals and British constitutionalists, opposed the forming of constituent assembly and preferred conference method. Conference method, in practical terms, it meant the leaders of various organizations, either nominated by their own organization or British government, and some notable individuals, will meet in a conference, hammer out a constitution, which could be acceptable to all sections of the people and the British government. The Roundtable Conference of 1930-33 was convened in this manner by the British government, which led to the passing of the Government of India Act of 1935. However, Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru carried on a vigorous propaganda in favour of constituent assembly. 
The Constituent Assembly was organized in 1946 in accordance with the British Cabinet Mission Plan of May 16. The Assembly had three, not three members, of whom 235 represent provinces formerly with British India, and 68 represented the princely states. The members from the provinces were chosen by the Provincial Assembly elected by the popular vote in 1945 to 46. under the terms of the old constitution that is the india act of 1935 which conferred the franchise on approximately 11% of the total population the members of the princely states were chosen by the government or legislative bodies in newly formed individual states post independence framing of the constitution of india within in 3 years was a great achievement considering the size diversity and various complex problems india faced framing the constitution was a stupendous and challenging task the constituent assembly was really fortunate to have many distinguished statesmen freedom fighters intellectuals and patriots coming from several spheres of national life and representing india's most of the regions interests social groups groups and political parties one such distinguished statesman and intellectual called upon to play a great role in the framing of the constitution was dr bhim rao ambedkar who was persuaded by the leaders of indian national congress to accept the chairmanship of the drafting committee of the constituent assembly so that is it for today um i wish uh, these podcast kindle in you the interest to know more about the state you live in and also about the indian constitution as citizen it's a duty to know the document that governs us and also how the country is being governed thank you for listening i'm diksha here signing off keep learning take care and stay safe till we meet in the next podcast bye bye